This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Radio. Oh, welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to Jordan Space. Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. Welcome to show 26 of Jordan's Space. On this week's show, we're going to be speaking with Charlie Hart. Charlie lost her son, Iggy, to suicide in April 2019. He was 15 years old. Iggy was autistic, and Charlie is autistic. And in today's interview, we're going to explore the issue of autism and its links with a higher risk of suicide in the population. We're also going to be talking about other aspects of neurodivergence and diversity and inclusion in the workplace and in our communities. Before we meet Charlie, I'd like to welcome back to the show our regular co-hosts, Danny and Paul. And Paul, I think there's little doubt that today's conversation with Charlie is one that will really pull at the heartstrings of those listening and probably cause some to feel extremely angry about what Charlie and her son Iggy experienced in dealing with a system that should have done more to protect them as a family. In your work in suicide prevention, what have you learned about autism and its links with suicide? Well, it's one of those subjects that's come up from time to time. I've had a little bit of personal experience in our family. I've had a lot of professional experience. But, you know, when I actually had a recent conversation with Charlie, I learned a lot. And I think that's what we all have to keep recognising, that we say in our zero suicide society model that the foundation stone is listening to and learning from people with lived experience. And until you actually go and really engage with somebody who has that lived experience, uh, then you don't, you know, you don't, you don't know much about it or you don't know as much as you need to know about it. And it's good that it's starting to come into the conversation now around suicide because it's clearly a big suicide risk factor. Yeah, I think it's important, isn't it? as I say, we've been very honest in our approach. We've been leading the discussion around a zero suicide strategy, but we don't have all the answers. And it is so important that we we learn from others. And I think this is going to be a fantastic opportunity to listen to Charlie and for anyone who's not really aware of neurodivergency and autism and the issues around it. I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. What are your thoughts about the government's new national suicide prevention strategy announced last week, including autistic people as one of the priority groups to focus on? Um, well, when you said, what are your thoughts about the government's new strategy? I mean, I, I could have gone on for an hour. I better not do that. We're, we're publishing our, uh, our response to all of that on our website and people can read all of that. But specifically with regard to autistic people, it's in there as a priority group in, in the new National Suicide Prevention Strategy. 
And the way that strategy works, the way that process works, is it identifies priorities. And we've previously talked about the priority trap, the winners and losers syndrome. So some get in there, some don't get in there. What happens to people who don't get in there? But they talk about emerging evidence and, and campaigns and things that get it onto the national agenda. So autistic people are now in there and there is this emerging evidence. And in fact, there was a presentation I saw by Sue Wilgos at uh, the Northern Lincolnshire Conference, Suicide Prevention Conference last week. Sue lost her son, Danny, to, to suicide. Uh, and she estimates, or she presented some research, estimates potentially 10% of all suicides are people with autism. Uh, now, you know, <laughs> if that is the scale of it, then clearly we all need to know more about this. Yeah, I think it's really important. And and you mentioned the priority trap before. Just just briefly for those that are maybe not aware of our thoughts um, around the priority trap, can you just explain your thinking and around that? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's the it's the kind of culture and the structure and the system of government that we have that everything's founded on a kind of belief that there's scarcity, that there's never enough resources to do all the things we want to do, and therefore priorities have to be set. So a lot of processes in government start at the very beginning with people saying, let's set priorities. It doesn't even give a chance for us to open up the conversation about all the issues. It's straight into, well, who's a priority? Which groups are priorities? Which areas are priorities? And the National Suicide Prevention Strategy, in effect, is like a huge competition for priorities. And in competitions, there's winners and losers. Now, in suicide prevention, we can all think about what happens to the losers here. If you think about autistic people, it's great that they're in the, the new suicide prevention strategy, but they weren't in the previous one. So they lost the previous competition. They've now won this competition and things will start to happen, which is brilliant. But what about all the other people who aren't in this strategy, who aren't a priority group in this strategy? And so that's why in our zero suicide society model, we say that we've got to have a coordinated collaborative approach where everyone is a priority for someone. No, thank you for explaining that, that Paul. And, and Danny, how important is it, do you feel, that people with autism receive the support they need? Well, um, yeah, when, when I worked as a teaching assistant, I worked with several autistic children um, and this affected the, the way they interacted and, and communicated with those around them. And this was something that as a school we adapted to to ensure that they got the best possible experience out of school. And I think it partly really reflects the importance that from an early stage, autistic people get an early diagnosis, both um, to give them better self-understanding and to give them better access to support to improve their mental well-being, and um, particularly when we do know that they're in an, an increased risk of suicide due to the additional challenges and experiences they might face. So, you know, the, it's really important that there is an awareness of the increased risk of suicide and that the right support is in place to minimise this. And as you're saying, we're talking about schools, we're talking about once again going upstream to give the support in the early stages and not just at a, at a crisis um, position either. Well, look, thank you both. Uh, let's take a break now and we'll play some more music. And when we return, we'll be speaking with Charlie, who tragically lost her son Iggy to suicide when he was just 15 years old. Right now, we're going to listen to another of the tracks chosen by Charlie for today's show. It's The Lightning Seeds and The Life of Riley. This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back. Charlie Hart is a highly experienced HR professional and describes herself as a queer ODHDer who has been also diagnosed with complex PTSD. Charlie lost her son Iggy to suicide in April 2019 when he was just 15 years old. 
Today, she will share Iggy's story, including how HR inclusion work and speaking events cover topics about diversity and inclusion in the workplace through the lens of our own experience as a late diagnosed neurodivergent bipansexual mum of autistic children. Charlie, welcome to the show. This is a conversation that we've really been looking forward to, to having with you. I want to start by asking about one of the songs we've just played, which was The Life of Riley by The Lightning Seeds. What, why is that song special to you? It's a song that I clearly remember coming on the car radio when I was taking Iggy and the other kids to a trampoline park one day. And he listened to it and his ears pricked up and he said, I really like this. It really resonates with me. What is it? I'll add it to my list. Because he was autistic. And one of the things he did was collate information. <laughs> it's a typical autistic trait that he had a list of songs he liked. And we chose from some of those songs for his funeral. And wow. because we wanted it to be a celebration of his life and the things that he enjoyed, we had that playing as people walked in. And it's a very uplifting song. And it's, it kind of reminds me of uh, autistic joy. And you can actually have quite a hard life, but still get joy from things. And so those are the things I like to remember about Iggy. That's fantastic. And, and talking of joy, I have to say that the listeners to the show are not going to see this, but we can see behind you this amazing painting uh, on, yeah. a, on a wall, a mural with rainbows and, and hills and trees. Yeah, where, where are you? I'm in my office at home, which was Iggy's bedroom. So when when we lost Iggy, we'd, his bedroom was a bit of a shrine for a couple of months with a closed door, and it was triggering walking past it. Um, and I took some time off work, and my husband and I, we spent some time putting things that were precious in a box and keeping that clearing out, clearing out rubbish. And we ended up with an empty room, which was really sad. Mm. We talked about moving house, but we, what we decided to do was uh, paint a countryside mural instead and transfer it into a place of contemplation. And it's just grown over the years. As I, as I read out in my introduction about how you identify in the diagnoses that you've received, it, it might seem to anyone listening that you have a huge amount to deal with in your life before you even think about raising a family and going to work. Is that how it feels for you? Or has recognising and understanding your own neurodiversity actually helped you in many ways? Yes. Oh, it's definitely helped me, but I struggled for decades not knowing why I was struggling. So I was pretty gifted at school, but not one of the massive overachievers. I was clever enough to get uh, picked on for being weird and different and a clever clogs, but no high flyer. And I didn't actually know I was autistic until Iggy was 14 and he was exhibiting a lot of anxiety at high school and some anxiety states, which we later learned were autistic meltdowns. So he saw an adult, an adolescent psychiatrist privately actually, because I had private medical insurance at the time and she listened to him did, uh, talk about what how anxiety manifested for him and talked him through what an anxiety attack felt like and how he reacted to it. And her conclusion was, this isn't normal anxiety. He's talking about something far more extreme, an autism meltdown, 
And as I was listening to her, the pennies dropped and I realised that, uh, that it's very similar for me. So Iggy and I went through an autism diagnosis at the same time. He was 14, I was 42. And so I got my diagnosis pretty quickly. And suddenly it made a lot of sense of my life. Love to learn a bit about Iggy. And, you know, he was with you physically for 15 years. What did he particularly enjoy in life? Iggy was autistic as well, as I, as I mentioned, although he described it as autismic. <laughs> my my younger daughters say they have the tism. There's, there's always something that the kids now, there's a label that they use that seems cooler to them than medical terminology. So he was autistic and he really liked corny jokes. Not long before we lost him, he was training for the Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme, Bronze Award. And he and I were going on long country walks so that he could get used to walking longer distances, carrying a backpack. So he told me a lot of stuff during those walks and they really stick with me because I've got a really retentive memory. So, so I sometimes talk about him and it, I don't have like a tragic tone of voice, like I've really lost something, because I'm talking about him like he's still here, because my memory's that vivid. I was just going to say that in relation to what you said and about having autism, did that sort of have a different effect on how you found sort of dealing with your grief? Or... Yeah, that's a really good question. So a lot of autistic people experience grief very atypically. And I've, I've had very generic bereavement counselling where they discuss the, the grief cycle and curve. And yeah, no one follows that precisely anyway. There's always a bit of squiggling about. But to me, it's extremely different. Uh, there's a condition called alexithymia, which is basically struggling to identify and put into words your own emotions. And I have that a lot. And particularly people that are autistic have gone through traumas can can be really susceptible to that and what that means with me I might appear really calm and unbothered on the surface but way down deep the emotions can be brewing and gathering force like a tidal wave you know the surface of the sea is calm but underneath there's a storm brewing so it was never a smooth journey for me it, it kind of like it went through phases of complete denial almost to absolute sorrow and grief and unable to cope and then back again completely baffling to a lot of people that are not autistic and likewise my sense of humor so I tell a lot of jokes I've got a gallows humor it can shock some people I'm not great with small talk at the best of time and awkward greetings but after Iggy died if people said to me how are you how are you in that empathetic neurotypical way tilting their head and looking all sympathetic I used to respond with oh you know hanging in there <laughs> which is really shocking but that's autistic gallows humor for you I'm always interested when we're talking to people about these kinds of issues about how uh, it's portrayed on the tv and obviously for years and years, you know, you, you probably had nothing on the TV at all. And then recently there's been a few programmes and I, I remember watching The Airwood and, yes. you know, real good education from somebody writing that with lived experience. But different characters in there. So there's different 
autistic characters in there with different yes. traits, the rocking and the banging the head against the wall and the little lad retreating into his music. And that music just seemed so important to him. It wasn't just the kind of, you know, cancelling, noise cancelling from conversation. It seemed to be the music was so important yeah. to him. So you mentioned that with Iggy as well. So I'm interested about your thoughts on how autistic people are being portrayed on TV. One of the issues with the portrayal of autistic people on TV is the traits are exaggerated. So yes, it comes from actual autistic writers uh, and producers and sometimes actors, not often enough, having real experiences, but they tend to be caricatures. Right. So <laughs> this kid with the music and headphones and not talking very much, what was more interesting to me is watching the other characters in that and picking up the autistic but not mentioned traits of the granddad and the mother. Yeah. yeah. Charlie, if you're comfortable with this, I'd like to move on and talk about the events around Iggy's suicide. I, I understand that initially his death was recorded by the coroner as an accidental death. Can you tell us a little bit about the events and, and what happened at that time? I would like to, yeah. This is something I've only talked about fairly recently because... It, it's very difficult to go through a grief and loss journey twice. And that's what I discovered myself. When Niggy was found, he was presenting as female at the time. And the policeman that first talked to me said that he thought it was autoerotic asphyxiation accident. And... Because, because Iggy had been excitedly planning his Duke of Edinburgh expedition, his work experience, looking forward to the next Marvel film, buying a rock tumbler, various things like that, that would seem to me forward thinking. It didn't make sense to me that it could possibly be anything other than an accident. So I was there in the coroner's inquest talking about how Iggy had come to terms with being autistic that he was maybe even inspired a bit by my neurodiversity affirming approach and how I embraced my diagnosis, that he was excited and looking forward to the future. The coroner ruled he suspended himself on purpose, but was probably an accident in the balance of probabilities. He meant to suspend himself, but he didn't mean it to end his life. So the ruling was accidental death. Now, about a week after that, the police brought back Iggy's laptop and his mobile phone. They hadn't been able to access the mobile phone because I think it had gone flat and crashed. They gave back the laptop exactly as it was, all the same browser tabs open and everything. So my husband and I looked at them because, yeah, you try and make sense of mm. these things. What we found on the laptop was various internet searches about how to cope with being autistic, how to cope with being gay. So these things that I talked about openly that I thought he could talk to me about, he was Googling them, you know, looking for more answers and how to quickly and painlessly end your life. So the, how the police thought it was an accident I don't know. But more disturbingly, they'd looked at the laptop, they looked at the browsing history, what chat rooms he'd been in and all sorts. They put some of that into the report they sent to the coroner, 
but in my view now looking at it now it feels skewed like they saw him in female clothes and thought he was doing something kinky <laughs> you know I feel like it was a bit homophobic transphobic perhaps I don't know but at the time it, it just seemed like they'd made a a horrific mistake. The more unforgivable and serious mistake, though, is that my husband looked at the phone and, yeah, we couldn't reboot it either, but there was a memory card in it. My husband looked at that and Iggy had filmed his own death. The police didn't see that. You see me talking about this in a very detached manner now and not choking up. Yeah, this is the what I'm talking about, the matter-of-fact the video showed him doing it deliberately. It showed his hands tied behind his back. <laughs> you know, he tied his hands together and then stepped through them so they were behind his back. I think he filmed it because he wanted people to know that there was nobody else in the room. So when you go through that, I think it's a major brain event in, that causes somebody to actually hit the big red escape button and it's not rational and you're not thinking mm. Mm. how are the people that I leave behind going to cope with finding me, burying me, life without me. You don't think about that stuff, but I do think that he wanted to make sure that we were not implicated. The police came round then, not only the investigating officer, but the, the detective sergeant above her came round to our house a couple of times to basically say we're so sorry this is not something that normally happens and please accept our apologies but you know it what it, it is human error at the end of the day so no there's no recriminations from me so what I've asked them to do is put controls in place where work is checked by a second person when you spend some time coming to terms with the loss of a loved one and you reach acceptance and rationalize it and then find out you had it all wrong and you're back to square one and what that feels like it's yeah <laughs> it's having to grieve all over again and feeling pretty stupid as well and naive and yeah. Charlie, when we spoke previously, you mentioned that you'd, and you mentioned it briefly this morning about having a private assessment, going private. And I understand that you sought out an assessment to check if there was any issues potentially around suicidality with Iggy, and you were assured there were not. Yes. Okay. When, when Iggy first started exhibiting severe anxiety, I had private medical insurance through work. So he went to a private psychiatrist and that's when they picked up the autism. But he then had six sessions of therapy with a therapist who I'm assured is very skilled and experienced in supporting autistic teenagers. But after his death, I actually asked for the notes and it was evident to me that they didn't scratch the surface. So we now know he was struggling to come to terms with being gay, as well as uh, coping with all the draining peopling of uh, being autistic and in a mainstream school. But I think that she didn't delve deep enough because nothing about sexual orientation or gender identity came out at all. So I think it's really important that 
young people have a space where they can talk about their sexual orientation and their gender without fear of judgment and in a place where they can be open and and be met with acceptance and understanding. Mm. And And was suicide specifically mentioned in that assessment or in the notes? No, not at all. I think at home there might have been some signs that we dismissed. There may have been attempts that I might have picked up on if I'd thought about it a little bit more, but I didn't want to. This is so important, Charlie. Thank you so much for for sharing this. Really appreciate it. We're going to take a break. We're going to listen to another song that you've chosen for us, and it seems quite a poignant moment in many ways to, to play this song, but we're going to play Creep by Radiohead. Tell us a little bit about what's special about this song for you. It's, to me, very symbolic of feeling very weird and different and like you don't fit in and like that zebra that thinks it's a defective horse. Tom York, who wrote it, you know, I think he's absolutely awesome and amazing, but he's obviously gone through times in his life where he's felt like a creep and a weirdo and an outsider and not good enough and uh, held other people on a pedestal whilst putting himself down and... To me, that is really what it's like to be an undiagnosed autistic struggling to navigate a neurotypical world. Let's listen to Radiohead and Creep. Hi, it's Zoe Bishop here. If you want to get your weekend off to the best start, join me every week for my Feel Good Friday show from 11am to 1pm. Two hours of fab music, wellbeing tips and Friday fun. This This is is Yawa Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back. We're talking with our guest, Charlie Hart. Charlie lost her son, Iggy, to suicide in 2019, age 15. Iggy and his three siblings were all diagnosed as autistic, as is Charlie. Charlie, you're you're an advocate for neurodiversity. And I'd like to start with a question, first of all, because there would be people that are familiar with the term neurodiversity. But I'm wondering if there's a lot of people that don't really understand what that means. Can, can you help them a little bit with... Yes, no problem. Uh, So neurodiversity, it's a socio-political term that just acknowledges the fact that every human brain is wired differently. And then from there, you've got the neurodiversity paradigm, which is a concept that conveys that brains are different and that's okay. It doesn't mean some of them are defective. It's advantageous to the human species just like biodiversity is advantageous to the planet and, and the plants and animals, et cetera, that live live on it. Uh, we're not meant to all be wired the same, and it doesn't mean some of us are broken. Brains are unique and different. All humans have got their own set of strengths and challenges. So that's what it's about. It's become then synonymous with the disability rights movement and the neurodiversity movement. And this is basically people who have a neurological difference, such as autism, dyslexia, ADHD, Tourette's, some acquired neurological conditions, like you might have bipolar or OCD, or you've had a stroke or brain injury through accident. And the neurodiversity movement is campaigning for us to be able to thrive in society and it's much like the disability rights movement you know so neurodiversity advocates like myself 
we educate people about what they need to know to be able to work with and socialize with and be married to etc people with brains that are wired differently from typical and and uh, we also do things like help businesses know how to recruit how and why to recruit neurodivergent people and what they can do to help them thrive in the workplace so this has been my work i worked in hr for 20 years and then discovered I was autistic in 2018 at the same time as Iggy. And I stayed in HR for a further five years, but with a big chunk of my time dedicated to talking about how to be more neuro-inclusive in the workplace. And outside of work, I've spent a lot of time talking about my lived experience so that others like me can recognize themselves and get assessed or you don't even need a diagnosis necessarily just identifying that your brain is a bit different and and that there's a reason why can be hugely validating so so that's the kind of work I've done both in work and outside work by this summer it's become so important to me that I've quit my HR day job and I've turned my neurodiversity it was a side quest it's now my main mission so I deliver talks about it and related subjects like intersectionality and the double rainbow is one of my specialisms. If you're on the autistic spectrum and the LGBT spectrum, there's this symbolism there of a double rainbow. So in my charity work for Aim for the Rainbow, which is the, the queer corner of autistic inclusive meets, we talk about how common and normal it is to be LGBT in one way or another and neurodivergent in one way or another, so that young people on the double rainbow don't feel weird and different and ostracized and people realize that they're not either. And we hope to create a more accepting society and break away from the cis-het normative and uh, neuronormative expectations so that people can thrive as themselves. I'm sitting here listening to you now talking about a subject that, you know, I'll readily admit I, I don't know enough about or a lot about at all. And I'm just imagining you delivering a workshop or delivering a talk. What's the response you're getting from people when, when you're out? Yeah, uh, I'm getting rebookings and I've I started to talk about things that other people won't talk about as well. So that's that goes down really well. And what another autistic and ADHD trait is we can be oversharers. And as a speaker, that's really working in my favour <laughs> because, you know, I could talk for an hour about employment <laughs> legislation, case law and HR best practice. And some of that is important and relevant. But what really captures people's imagination and wins the hearts and minds is the lived experience. Mm. And if you can deliver that in a very candid way, and it really gets to people in a good way. <laughs> people feel something. Oh, I, I agree entirely. I mean, the, the talk, the keynote that I'm delivering lots of at the moment, how to cope with the S word, uh, Paul yeah. referred to the A word earlier on. So much of that is about the lived experience of, of that day. Mm. And, and I can relate when talking to people about how to have a conversation with someone who may be struggling or feeling suicidal. You know, I relate continuously back to conversations with Jordan. 
and it, and it brings it to life for people. I would absolutely agree. Those lived experience mm-hmm. stories make such a difference. And you say you say it so clearly, Charlie. You know, you just articulate this so clearly. It's it's wonderful stuff. So I can imagine the talks and the workshops go down. Well, are you targeting any particular audience? Is it people who know nothing about this subject or people who know something about this subject or any particular started, group? started off in the niche of neurodiversity in the workplace simply because of my HR background and HR qualifications and experience. But uh, th- there are a lot of people in that field, actually. And what I tend to do now, I get approached and then I tailor my talk to the demographic so last week I delivered a talk to the uh, Gin and Pickles Network, which is my local village with <laughs> uh, women business entrepreneurs. So <laughs> there was no point me standing there and preaching about how a corporate office environment uh, <laughs> yeah. can be neuro-inclusive because these are all people that have escaped the rat race and struck out on mm, their own. Mm, mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> I I had to basically rewrite it completely and doing that constantly. I've done a talk for cruise bereavement counselling about the atypical grief journey as well. And I was uh, going back to the drawing board with that. So it's not just about having a polished talk and, and delivering it and honing it. I'm constantly writing and I'm, I'm trying to understand my audience. When I'm booked for a talk, I don't just show up with a PowerPoint and deliver it. I usually have at least a one hour meeting with the client to understand their demographic and what they hope to get out of it and then tailoring it accordingly. I just wondered if you and your family, Charlie, have any special ways that you sort of remember Iggy. So me me personally, as a kind of thing I do on my own, is I like to retrace the footsteps of walks that I did with Iggy when we were preparing him for his Duke of Edinburgh expedition. Because I've got a, a really vivid uh, memory, audiovisual, autobiographical memory, I can virtually walk the same path and it's like he's still there and I'm remembering our picnics and, oh, that's the lock we sat on and ate a Mary Berry banana fudge cake. <laughs> it's my autistic talent, you know? And I can remember the conversations and mull over them. And I like to do that on my own. Things we do as a family, there's rock painting. So there's a group called Iggy Rocks. You can find it on most social media, hashtag Iggy Rocks. And I like to go down to my local river and collect smooth pebbles. And then we paint rainbows or things Iggy like, like cars, James Bond logo, all kinds of things. Anything that's either reminds us of Iggy or it's neurodiversity affirming, LGBT affirming, double rainbows, obviously, because of mm. the, the double rainbow intersection I mentioned earlier. And we put hashtag Iggy rocks on the back and hide them. And people find them and post pictures in the group. They do their own. People that followed me or followed Iggy on social media join in with this. I love it. And I was at a CAMS protest actually last week. Uh, because I'm part of a petition and and protest group about how CAMS have rejected a lot of autistic adolescents with mental health challenges, basically because they're autistic and they don't know what to do with them, I think. It's not that they don't care, they're massively under-resourced, but uh, the result of that is 
two two hundred thousand signatures from parents whose autistic teenagers have been let down and rejected wow. by cams. And I met other parents there, other bereaved parents. They couldn't talk about it as matter of fact as me. They shared their stories and they were welling up and hugging each other. But one lovely couple had painted rocks as well. So they'd done the exact same thing. Stefan's memory stones. So it was lovely to find that. Charlie, we, we've talked a bit about the A word and Steve talked about the S word. We also sometimes talk about the B word. This is this is the bravery word. This is the when people speak out and tell their story, everybody tells them they're brave. You know, you're yeah. so and, and we have a problem with that for a number yeah. of reasons. One is that it stigmatizes people who don't speak out because they're not brave, you know, and there's things like that. And we also recently I I did a post on LinkedIn relating it to the disability rights movement and about how People initially, when they started speaking out, were told how brave they were and they hated being called brave and they felt it was their right to speak out and so on. So I'm interested from your perspective. Do, do people tell you you're brave for, for telling your story or do you get this? Sometimes, yeah. I get told I'm brave for getting up and singing and playing guitar at open mic nights as well. And it always makes me think, oh, are they saying that because I'm not very talented? <laughs> what I lack in talent, I make up for in enthusiasm and putting myself <laughs> out there. Yeah, I hate it. People are usually well-meaning, though, you know. it's I always rem- remember that. Uh, I try to read people's intent. Mm. So if they say actual words that that don't sit right with me, I try yeah. to not react straight away, but read their intent. Charlie, before we let you leave, we always like to end our shows on a, a message of hope for those that, that are listening. And who would your message of, of hope be for and, and what would that message be that you'd like to share? Younger kids than Iggy that are on the double rainbow or or different for any other reason. Don't dull your sparkle for anyone. <laughs> be your wonderful, weird, quirky, queer, whatever selves and be proud Life's too short to to hide yourself away. Fantastic. Well, what a great message to end on. Um, Before we go, we're going to play a couple more tracks uh, today. The next one we've chosen, I somehow feel we've chosen these in exactly the right order, is one that you referred to a little earlier, and that's Somewhere Only We Know by Keen. Again, just to introduce that song, why this is so special to you. It reminds me of my walks with Iggy because it's talking about wandering a a lonely road and in the countryside and a fallen tree and things like that. I like being in nature and so did he. And so now to me, it reminds me of those walks and also the walks I do on my own to remember him and walks I did as a child with my parents and my brother as well. So lots of, lots of very happy memories. Charlie, Thank you so much for for joining us uh, today. We really appreciate it. Fascinating conversation. And let's listen to Keen and Somewhere Only We Know. And we'll be right back with Danny and Paul with a roundup of today's conversation. Bringing the feel-good feeling into every single day of the week you are listening to Yow Radio. Now, on a Friday, you can join Kagan and Rob uh, for Rise of Happiness. 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock every Friday right here on Yawa Radio. Join Kagan and Rob for Rise of Happiness, where they'll be sharing some truly, truly happy and inspirational stories. 10 o'clock Friday, Rise of Happiness right here on Yawa Radio with Rob and Kagan. 
Welcome back, everybody. Danny and Paul, I've got to sound like a broken record here, but so often I seem to say what an incredible conversation that was. I think it it was with with Charlie, I think for me, just her her openness and her honesty and transparency about the whole experience that she's been through was so so impactful. Paul, what what were the key things that really you took away from that conversation? So much, so much. I mean, she talked about, you know, the, the... not seeing autistic people like like the defective horse you know the zebra story they're not you know people are different and people are just different it's like reminded me of you know people talk about charles darwin's origin of species coming out and, and it's all about survival of the fittest darwin never said survival of the fittest that was a journalist and the economist reviewing the book who coined the phrase survival of the fittest darwin showed that what what survives on the planet is uh, creatures that are different you know and adapt to their environment and charlie's got this wonderful way of describing all these things so beautifully so simply complex issues which he reduces down to something that's really simple and understandable and i just absolutely love listening to her and i would certainly recommend her for talks and workshops and just the more people can learn more about this the better you know and it's we've got to celebrate that difference there's a brilliant program on abc when i was in australia called you can't say that. <laughs> and it was just taking a really difficult, challenging topic each week and just interviewing people like Charlie. And I learned so much from that. Yeah, I mean, it, the way she came across was just incredible. I think people are going to learn so much from today's show. D- Danny, how about you? It's obviously such a, a heartbreaking story to listen to. But, you know, and as Charlie said, these stories are, are so important, uh, you know, lived experience stories to help others to others to understand more clearly what they might be experiencing and, and help them to get the support they need as well. And obviously, she's doing such important work now as well in, in neurodiversity, uh, which is important in terms of learning, reducing stigma and, and helping others. So I think what she's doing now is, is really important as well. So Definitely. And, and I like the fact that, that you know, throughout that, she talked about a humour and the importance of, of, of humour as well. And I, I, I can just imagine her delivering those talks and the audience just almost being spellbound, I would think, with yeah. what they're, they're listening to. Yeah. And Iggy's just sounds like a gorgeous lad, an absolutely gorgeous lad. And it's just tragic that we lose people like this. Oh, yeah. Very, very, very sad. And and on that note, you know, once again, you know, we appreciate t- today's has been probably quite challenging for a lot of people listening uh, to the show. So again, on the jordanlegacy.com, our help and resources menu are there with many great resources. If you do find that any of what we've talked about today has been disconcerting or even triggering for you in any way. Well, that's it for another episode of Jordan Space. My thanks to Danny and Paul and to this week's guest, Charlie Hart. Thank you also for tuning in. I hope you found today's discussion interesting and insightful as we have. And if you felt inspired to support our work to help prevent suicides, you can make a donation on our website to thejordanlegacy.com or you can get in touch by emailing hello at thejordanlegacy.com. You can also engage with us on social media by following the Jordan Legacy CIC's LinkedIn company page. We're also on Twitter and Instagram using the username at Jordan Legacy UK. And of course, you can find us on Facebook at the Jordan Legacy. You can listen to recordings of previous shows of Jordan Space on our website by choosing the Jordan Space menu at the top of the page. For now, from Danny, Paul and myself, we'd like to wish you as always a safe, healthy and above all hopeful rest of your week. And we're going to leave you with one final song of hope here. You'll Never Walk Alone by Jerry and the Pacemakers. 
A big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.co.uk. And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk. UK. Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio Podcast. Copyright applies. <laughs>